Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge Church. Glad you're here in the room and online. Uh, however you are here and however you got here, whyever you're here, thank you for being here. So last week... We started a brand new message series. It's going to be a short one. It was last week, this week, and next week, so three weeks only. Uh, but we call it, we're calling it very simply Checkmate. Because what we're doing is we're taking the game of chess and we're kind of using that as our metaphor for faith and for life. And last week, if you were here, uh, let me just review if you weren't here, because it kind of has bearing on where, understanding where we're going today. So last week, we talked about the fact that we, as people, are in a constant spiritual battle. Now, a lot of people, they don't believe in this, they don't, they don't think this, because it's not usually visible. Every now and then it becomes visible. But this is one of those things where it is a spiritual battle, where there is a battle going on and it's over you. It's for you. They're battling for you. Now, the two opponents that are battling for you is God and Satan. God and Satan, those are the two opponents. So just like chess, you're trying to get checkmate. God and Satan are battling, and they're battling over the most valuable thing, which is you. They're battling over you. Now, we talked about this battle, and we talked about those things. So today what I want to do is I want to turn the corner a little bit, and I want to talk about a very specific reason why they're battling over you. They're battling over something that is really, really valuable. Now, if you think about the game of chess, what's the most valuable piece on the board? You could come up with a lot of different reasons, a lot of different ideas for that, but really the most valuable piece has to be the point of the game, correct? If you have the king, you're good, right? In chess, if the king is safe, the game is okay. When the king gets in danger, or when the king can no longer move anymore, it's called what? Checkmate. Game over. And so the king is the most valuable, the most important piece of the game. And so what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to use the king chess piece as our kind of metaphor today. And I want to talk to you about three things about the king. But before I do that, I want to tell you what the king on the chessboard represents. It represents you, but it represents a little bit more than just you. It represents something that is the most important aspect of you. It's the most important, it's the most valuable thing that you are, that you have. And it's not something that you can see. And it's not necessarily even something that you can think about all that often. But it's always there, and it's actually what makes you a person. And that thing is not a thing, but I have to call it a thing because I don't know what else to call it because it's your soul. Your soul. Your soul is the most important aspect of you. Now, the right away, the first question that we have to ask is, okay, I've heard of a, you know, a soul or we, I even heard this this week. Oh, he's kind of like an old soul. You know, you've heard that or you've heard soul food. You know, we've heard of these things, right? We've heard of a lot of these things. And all of those things are fine, but I don't think we really understand what a soul really is. Because we know that we have one, or we think that we might have one, but we've never seen one. Has anybody ever seen the soul? No, you haven't. You know why? Because it's not a physical thing. 
You can't see the soul. You can't examine the soul. And so what is the soul? Well, the soul is the part of you that is not physical. It's the part of you that makes you who you are. It actually makes you a person. Your soul is your personhood. It's what makes you who you are. But it's not physical. And it's not, by the way, tied to your body. We think it's like in here somewhere, you know? Like even when, I'll probably do it today, I have no doubt. When I refer to the soul, I'm probably going to do this, right? Because we think it's probably somewhere in here, is what we think. When in reality, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You are the soul. It's not tied to your body. The body is a vessel. This is why, and not to get morbid, but when somebody passes away and you see their body, let me just ask you, does it look like the person? Not really, does it? That's partly why it's so hard to look at a body, isn't it? Because it doesn't look like the person. You know why it doesn't look like the person? Because that's just their body. It's not the person anymore. The soul has left the building. Seriously, it's gone. It still exists because it's eternal. But that person is not there anymore. The body is simply a shell, a vessel. And so we're going to talk about the soul. Aren't you excited? We're in deep water already this morning, aren't we? You're like, oh man, this is really intense for January. But that's what we're going to do. I want to talk about the soul, and I want to talk about the king chess piece and how three things about the king chess piece parallel with the soul, with who you really are. All right? So let's jump in. Let's get it done. Uh, first, the king chess piece, and I've already kind of hinted at this, is the most valuable piece on the board. As the king goes, so goes the game. So as your soul goes, so goes your life. As your soul is, whatever your soul is going on, whatever's going on with you and your soul is how life is because it's tied completely to who you are. And, and sometimes, the truth is, let's be honest, we forget how important our soul is. I don't know about you, but I, uh, I like to focus on my physical body, you know? And I don't mean in the good way. I mean like uh, I see food and I'm like, yep, that would be awesome. Not good for me, but awesome. You know? How many of you saw about a thousand cookies over the holiday season? I did. And, and I had to fight against eating about half of them. Maybe the other half I just ate, <laughs> you know, because it's hard because my body, I'm like, oh, yeah. But the truth is that I don't think about my soul all that often because it's just there. I just, it's not something tangible. And so we misunderstand. We forget that the most important aspect of our life is our soul. It's something that we don't always think about. We can't see. And when we lose that perspective, when we start worrying about all the other pieces and not the king, not our soul, we get distracted. We start seeing things in the wrong way. We start realizing, we start thinking, my plan needs to work. My plan needs to work, and, 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 and I'm going to do my plan, and then I don't know if God's going to bless it, but I, I'm just going to do what I want to do. So let me kind of give an example of this. So I referenced this story in the Bible last week. Uh, remember when I referenced Peter being called Satan? By Jesus, that's a bad day. <laughs> if, if Jesus says, 
get behind me, get away from me, Satan. Okay, that's a rough day. I want to share the context of that story. I want to actually get into the whole part of that story. So Jesus has just asked the question, who am I? And Peter has this amazing moment where he says, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. You are the savior of the world. And Jesus says, you're right. Way to go, Peter. You know that because I told you that. I let you know that. This is awesome. But then there's this next moment. This is what Jesus starts saying after Peter declares, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, I'm going to start with verse 21. From then on, after Peter declared this, from then on Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He's talking about being crucified, right? He would be killed... But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Now, Jesus starts saying this to the disciples. He's saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kind of do some pretty awful things to me. And then I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to resurrect after three days. By the way, that's some crazy statement stuff, right? But he starts saying this. And, the, and Peter and the disciples, I just have to say this, they don't like that. They are not okay with what Jesus is saying. You know why? Because they think Jesus is the Messiah in this sense. They believe Jesus has come to lead a rebellion against the Roman Empire. That's what they're excited about. In fact, we get glimpses of this. Like uh, when, we, when we talk about this at Easter, when, when Jesus is arrested, what does Peter do? He draws his sword, right? They, they had swords. They're like, Jesus, we're ready to fight. Like, we're ready. Shouldn't we be training Shouldn't we be like working out? Shouldn't we be going to Anytime Fitness and kind of making sure we're ready for this? You know, that's what they think. This is their mindset. They think that he is a political and physical Messiah. Jesus is not. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to go suffer, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to resurrect, that doesn't fit with the disciples' plan. Jesus, that's not our plan. We're going to lead a revolt, and then we're going to sit with you, and you're going to rule over this world. It's going to be awesome, or we're going to be right next to you. That doesn't fit with their plan. And so, you know what Peter does? Does, does anybody have anybody in their life where they just say what they think immediately? There's no filter. Peter's kind of that guy. Peter's just that guy. He's like, he thinks something, and he's going. Like, it's all in. He doesn't really consider, like, eh, is this going to be good, or is this going to turn out bad? Peter's just like, all in. And so Peter hears this. He's going to die. He's going to suffer. He's going to do all this stuff. And then this, so Peter decides to say something because he has very little filter. This is what he says. Very next verse. But Peter took Jesus aside and began to reprimand him. Anybody ever try to reprimand Jesus? Mm-hmm. Reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. In other words, I'm not, we're not going to let you die. We're not going to let you suffer. You're the Messiah. We're willing to fight. I've got my sword. I'm ready to go. What does Jesus do? Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. Whoops, wrong filter for Peter. <laughs> you are a dangerous trap to me, Jesus says. You are seeing things, catch this, merely from a human point of view, not from God. 
Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you have forgotten that I have come actually for the most important thing, which is not politically, which is not physically, which is not to serve you food, which is not to do all these other things. I have come so that I can help you with the most important, valuable thing that you have, which is you, your soul. That's why I'm here. You're looking at this through a human perspective. I'm not here to take up arms against the Romans. I'm here to do something way bigger than the Roman Empire. Can you imagine that? Something bigger than the Roman Empire at that time? That was pretty big for the Israelites because the Romans had conquered them. And Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap. I do not want to hear these temptations. Now, then Jesus says something that really kind of is the crux of this that we don't always talk about. I, I don't usually talk about this. But this is the very next verse. Then Jesus has to, I mean, he just called Peter Satan. He has to say something, right? So then he says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And then catch this. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? And he asked this question, is anything worth more than your soul? The clear and obvious answer to that question is no. There's nothing worth more than your soul. There's nothing worth more than your soul. You are the most valuable. Your soul is the most valuable piece of who you are. And so we've got to keep our perspective and not look at it through human eyes. We need to look through God's eyes. All right? So the king, the soul, is the most important part of who you are. Okay? Number two. The second thing about the king chess piece. This is going to sound weird, but the king is really needy. Anybody have needy friends? Yeah, they're just needy. High maintenance. The king chess piece is needy. You know why? Because it's the most valuable piece, but it can only move how many spaces at a time? One space. Ah, oh, come on. And so you've got to figure out the knights and the rooks and the bishops and the pawns and everything. What are they trying to do? They're trying to protect this needy little king that can only move one space at a time. It is so needy. Guess what? Your soul is needy. Your soul is needy. You know why it's needy? Because God made it that way. This might be the first time you've ever heard that your soul is needy. You're like, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like to be needy. I don't want my soul to be needy. I don't want to be needy. I just don't want to be high maintenance. I'm with you, right? I'm with you. But the truth is that your soul is needy. And it's because God designed it that way. Now, let me try to just get into this and explain this, okay? So, let me start by sharing a scripture passage that kind of talks about how our soul needs God. Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says this, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Your soul was made thirsty. Your soul was made needy. 
Your soul was made to need desperately. Why? Because God knows that the most important thing is that you need Him. And there's this massive, massive desire in your soul for something. For something good, for something greater. We all know this. We get this deep down. We know that we long for something bigger and greater all the time. We never get enough. We never have enough. That partly comes from our soul, which is limitless. Now, here's the truth. You're limited in every possible way in this life, aren't you? Physically, there's only so much you can do. Okay? Some of you are some of you I know, you work out all the time. And so you could take me. I know. I got it. I'm very limited in my physicality. You could come up here and you could probably lift half this stuff that we've been setting up all morning. You'd be like, you could throw it on your shoulder, you know, and I had to use a cart with wheels. Okay. Good for you. <laughs> some of you are awesome. Okay. But the truth is that at some point you're gonna be limited, right? If I brought a car in, it'd be kind of hard to lift. Wouldn't it? At some point, you're going to reach a physical limitation. You're just going to hit that. We're limited emotionally. There's only so much we can handle. We're limited in eating. Have you ever tried like any of those challenges at a restaurant where it's like, here's a, what is that movie? 96-ounce steak. Wasn't it John Candy that did that, I think, in that movie? Like, it brings this out, and he's got the meat sweats as he's eating that thing. He's like, oh, yeah. Anybody ever tried that? And at some point, you're just like, oh, I can't. I, can't. I just, I can't. Why? Because you're limited. And you're also limited by the fact that you need food. If you don't get food, you're, you have to have food at some point. We can go without food for a long time, but, but at some point we're going to hit a limitation. You also need sleep, don't you? You need sleep. Your body has to have sleep. After two days of no sleep, you will literally start to hallucinate. After three, four days, they say that your brain breaks down so much that you, you literally stop being able to function. You can't even, your body can't even move, can't even do the things, normal little tasks like tying your shoe or something. Can't do it. You have to have sleep. You're limited. We're limited in time. Uh, my wife, Laura, mentioned this a few weeks ago. How many of you just want a couple of days that nobody else knows about so you can get stuff done or just sleep? Anybody? You're like, that's a great idea. Yeah, I want that. That would be Amazing. I could get this done, I get this cleaned, and that thing's not been cleaned for a couple years. Some of you want a vacuum behind your furniture. It's driving you nuts because you just you know how bad it looks back there. You don't even want to look, but you know. And you just want a couple of days where nobody else knows about it. We're limited in our abilities. We're limited in every possible way. But can I tell you this? This might be the first time you've ever heard this, but it's true. Your soul is limitless in its desire. There are no limits on it. None. Your soul is limitless. It is eternal. And this is what's really cool. So I want to share kind of how this, how this comes out and why this is true. Um, so my life group is going through this book called Soul Keeping. Highly recommend. John Ortberg is amazing. He writes this book, and the whole book is about the soul. Really, really good. Um, but I, I, want to just, I just want to read something. Uh, that he quotes, and he actually, John Ortberg quotes another guy named Kent Dunnington. And Kent Dunnington writes this about the limitless nature of the soul. Listen to these words. Just hang with me. It's a small paragraph, but listen, this is one of the most powerful things I've ever read about the soul, and it's, it's amazing. 
He says this. He says, we are limited in every way but one. We have unlimited desire. We always want more. More time, more wisdom, more beauty, more funny YouTube videos. (laughs) So true. Has anybody ever gone into the dark hole of YouTube? Like you just went there to find something, you watch something, and then an hour later you're like, what have I been doing? I've done that preparing messages. I'll admit it. I confess. There's been times where I'm looking for a clip for something. I'm like, ooh. By the way, I've just mentioned John Candy eating that steak. It's because I came across it this last week. Because I, I was looking about limits and food and all that stuff. Kid you not, that clip came up. I was like, this is great. I decided not to show it, but this is amazing. You know? And so I was there for several minutes watching stupid videos that I was not needing. I didn't need to take the time. I didn't have the time. And here I am in the dark hole of YouTube. It's because my soul is like, yeah, more, more desire. We're limitless. Okay, I digress. This is the soul crying out. We never have enough. The truth is, the souls, catch this, this is one of the most amazing things that has ever been written. The truth is, the soul's infinite capacity to desire is the mirror image of God's infinite capacity to give. Did you catch that? God designed your soul to be limitless because he's limitless in how much he wants to give to you. Your soul needs to be able to handle what God can give. And that's why he designed your desire to be limitless. Because he can give limitless. What if the real reason we feel like we never have enough is that God is not yet finished giving? The unlimited neediness of the soul matches the unlimited grace of God. How beautiful is that? You ever wondered why you always want more? It actually starts in a healthy place because God designed you that way. But here, of course, is the issue. If we fill our soul, try to fill the desires of our soul with anything less than God, all we're going to get is more emptiness in our soul. Because there's nothing that can fill in a limitless soul other than a limitless God. So do you, can, I, can, can we get real for a second? What do we try to fill our soul with? Here's what we try to fill our soul with. Some of these things. Food. I just admitted to you, sometimes I try to fill my soul with food. Absolutely. There's, there's a reason why we make fun of these things in, in comedy movies and things like that. When somebody goes through a breakup and, and all kind of stuff, what's the next scene? The next scene is we laugh at it because they're watching some sappy Hallmark movie and they're pounding ice cream and popcorn. Right? And they're just like, oh, I don't know why, but that's, what, that's the picture I'm getting. You know? And, and it's like, it's like this, this eating that comes out of our sorrow. We're like, oh, right? And, and, and so sometimes we, fi- we try to fill and we try to solve and we try to heal our soul through food. Sometimes we do it through drugs. Do you know why people get so addicted to drugs 
or we could throw alcohol in there, which is basically like a drug. The reason people get addicted to these things is because when they start, they're trying to fill their soul and they get that temporary feeling. Right? It might last an hour, it might last several hours, it might last a day, but they get that high, they get that moment, they get that thing, and then then what do they feel? They feel like their soul is filled. Oh, man, that was good. But here's the problem. How long does it last? It's fleeting. And then what do you have to do? You have to fill the soul again. So you have to shoot up. You have to breathe it in. Bottoms up. You're trying to fill the, the soul. You're trying to fill that desire because it's limitless. And you're trying to pack it in there. And what happens is when you fill it with something that's not limitless, it just, it's going to sit there and then it's going to be consumed because your soul is limitless. It's just sucked in. It's not going to do your soul any good and it's not going to fill your soul. You're, you're going to leave on the other end feeling empty again. This is why people start with soft drugs and then go to hard drugs and then end up getting into the really bad stuff. Because they're trying, to, they're trying to fill that soul, that void that only God can fill. We do this with relationships, work, success, money, social media, TV shows, movies. We try to fill our soul in whatever way we can except the one that can fill our soul, which is God. It's the only way. So what are you filling your soul with? What are you putting in there? I grew up uh, singing a lot of hymns early on in my life. Eventually we transitioned to like choruses and then full band and all kinds of, you know, we did all that. And, uh, but I grew up singing hymns. And one of the hymns that I ended up singing as a kid was My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. Some of you remember that hymn? My hope is built on nothing less. And, and I just, this is the first verse of that song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Do you lean completely on Jesus? Or are you leaning on something else? Jesus is the only one that can fill the soul because he's the one that created you to need him. Limitless. Are you filling your soul with the only one that can completely satisfy it? A relationship with God. He made you to be able to do that. All right, one more. The king chess piece. Remember, we're talking about that. So it's, it's really, really valuable. It's the most important aspect of you, your soul. But it's also really needy. It has a limitless desire, and so it needs God to fill it. And then the last one is this. The king can easily be forgotten. I don't know how many times I've played chess, 
and, and I'm moving my knights into place and I'm getting the bishops so that I can trap them and I can do all this and the pawns are controlling the middle of the board and all these things. And then at some point, the other person who almost always is better at chess than me, it seems like I'm just playing the wrong people, right? But they, then they get me and all of a sudden they've got me checkmate because I forgot about where the king was. I forgot. I let him... Let him sit on his own, and I was moving all the pieces to attack and do this thing, and I had these plans, and, and all of a sudden, checkmate. And what God says is we need to keep him in the right place. We've not, we need to keep God in the ranking in our life where he needs to be. We have to keep him there. And when we forget that, you know what the Bible calls that? You know what God calls that? You guys have heard this word, this term. It's called idolatry. Idol worship, when we replace God with someone or something that's not God. So what are the first four of the Ten Commandments? Do you remember them? The first one is no other gods before God. The second one is no idols. Don't make any statues or images. Don't worship anything for God. Worship God only. So no other gods. Don't worship anything other than God. And then what's the third one? Don't misuse the name of God. This is not a legalistic thing, but I will say this. Our culture has pretty much completely abandoned that one. We soften it a little bit, and so we make ourselves feel better about it. Because, like, for example, we use OMG. Oh, OMG. You know what that stands for. We all do. I'm not going to say it because that phrase... Here's what I know about that phrase. OMG is not worshiping God, and it's not calling on God for help. Therefore, it's misusing God's name. Third commandment says, don't misuse the name of God. Use God's name to praise him. Use God's name to call on help from him. Don't use it any other way. When I hit my finger with a hammer, don't use God's name. That's what it's talking about unless you really need God to come help you with your finger. And you might. <laughs> the way I've hit my finger sometimes with a hammer, I sometimes say, okay, I need God. Seriously. What's the fourth one? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We need a day of rest and we need a day where we focus on God. So these are the four things. What are those four commandments talking about? They're very simply talking about keep God in the place where he should be. And if you replace God, it's idol worship. It's idolatry. Now, the question becomes, and these are the last kind of couple of things that I want to mention. Why do we do idol worship? Why do we practice idolatry? Why do we, we replace God? Well, I think there's two lies that we believe. Here's the, the, the two lies. The first one is this. We believe some sin... Some things that God says are sin are okay. Some, some sin, we believe some sin is okay, and we believe that sin is not equal. Some sin is kind of bad, some sin is really bad, and some sin is like, eh, I'm not even sure if that's sin. We believe these lies. For example, uh, let's say that... Um, I commit the sin of, you know, being dishonest and stealing and things like that. I, I go into a store and I steal a pack of gum. Okay, that's sin. And then the next week, uh, I take somebody's life. 
I kill somebody. Okay? Now, some of you are like, those are very too extreme kind of things. Okay? They are. But case in point, let me tell you this. When it comes to the pack of gum and stealing and being dishonest and me killing somebody, did you understand that they're actually both sin and they actually do the exact same thing with God? Between you and God, they separate you from God. So they're actually the same theologically. Some of you are like, hold on. Stealing a pack of gum and killing somebody does not seem like it's the same thing. I didn't say it's the same thing, but I'm just saying theologically, as, as, as it relates to your relationship with God, they both do the same thing. They separate you from God. Now, here's what we all inherently know. On a practical level, the consequences of stealing a pack of gum and killing somebody are the practical, real-life stuff going to be different. Of course it is. If I steal a pack of gum, it's going to affect my relationship probably with the police, the authorities, the person who owns the store, and, and probably like, you know, my family and stuff. But if I take somebody's life unrighteously, if I, if I just wipe them out, if I commit that sin, that's, not only, that's going to affect my whole, the rest of my life. That's going to affect all my friends and family around me. That's going to affect, obviously, the people who love the person that I took out. It's going to affect their relationships. Let's be honest that stealing a pack of gum and taking somebody out, those are very different things from a practical level. I would agree. So on that level, they're unequal. But on a theological level, sin is sin is sin is sin. It separates you from God. It's all the same. And then there's a second lie that we believe. And that lie is sometimes we believe that the rules don't apply to us. Anybody, anybody ever fall into this trap? Man, I fall into this trap. I look, I look at the grocery line and I'm like, yeah, I probably have a few too many, but I really don't want to wait in those other lines. Anybody ever do that? I do that. Absolutely. You know why? Because there's a little piece of me that says, you know, the rules apply to everybody else. You guys better follow the rules. But for me, I'm, I think I'm good. Well, that's probably not a good idea. But sometimes we believe the rules don't apply to us. Have you ever heard this uh, phrase, you reap what you sow? Anybody ever heard that? Okay. Where does that come from? Does anybody know where that comes from? God's word. We use that phrase flippantly, but it actually comes from Scripture. Let me read the passage where it comes from. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. It says this. It says, don't be misled. Don't allow the lie to sink in. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. You reap what you sow, in other words. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Now, here's the truth. I read that scripture, and what do we tend to focus on? What do we tend to focus on? We focus on the negative, don't we? How many of you have ever had, when something really good happened to you, when something amazing, you got a bonus or, or just something amazing happened, you got this thing or, or you had this raffle at this you know, event and you won the biggest prize and you're walking out and, and you kind of get that. How many people have walked up to you when something good happened and said, you reap what you sow? 
Nope, they didn't do that, did they? Because we don't use that in the positive. Ooh, yeah, you reap what you sow. Good for you. We don't do that. You know what we do when we say that? When do we say that? We say that when somebody royally messes up, when somebody has something bad happen, and we say, "Mm, you reap what you sow. It's like, hammer down. Why do we focus only on the negative? God was really clear in that passage. You do reap what you sow. You will harvest what you plant. And that doesn't mean it's only negative. It also means if you live according to the Spirit, according to God, you will harvest amazing things. Eternity. It's true. We reap what we sow. How many of you expect if you plant corn in the spring that in the fall you're going to harvest wheat? Man, I thought if I planted corn, I was going to get bread. What is going on with this world? The rules should not apply here. Right? How many of you think if you plant corn, you're going to get wheat? None of us believe that. And yet we believe that if our life, with our life. If you plant anger, you're not going to get kindness. You just, you just, you're not going to. That's not where it leads. If you plant busyness, into your life, you're going to harvest stress and exhaustion. That's just, if that's what you plant, that's what's going to grow. There's no way around that. Why am I so stressed? Why am I so exhausted? Maybe because we're running like crazy. And I'm tell let me let me hear me on this. I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else on this one. You can ask my wife. I work hard. I'm busy. I've said Laura balances our family out. If it weren't for her, I would have our family going to literally everything that existed every night. Be like, why don't we go to that? There's a big rig event over there. My kids are too old for that. I don't care. Let's go anyway. There's going to be people there. You know? And I mean, if it's happening, I'm go, I want to go. And so Laura balances us out. And so this is a huge danger for me. I'll, I'm just going to be honest. If I plant busyness into my life, I'm going to get stress and exhaustion. If you plant me-centered living, you're going to get me-centered eternity, which is not a good one. That is something that you don't want anything to deal with. So this past week, I got an email from uh, an organization called Full Strength Network. And this organization basically seeks to serve pastors and help their soul be good. (laughs) Because we tend to, you know, try to help and take care of other people's souls. And sometimes we neglect our own souls. Sometimes, I'll admit, I have. And... um, and so I get articles and various things from them, and they sent an article this week. It's interesting that it came this week. And, and it had five questions. And I want to end with these five questions. I want you to consider these questions as I ask them. Just think about these. First question is, how well are you known? I'll say this, in the United States, we are really good at knowing a ton of people, but basically nobody knowing us. 
Social media, I know I pick on social media all the time, social media has been one of the most insidious things because it feels like everybody knows us when they don't. Oh, we're, we connect all the time. I mean, I post this, and we talked that, and we snapped last night. Okay. We, are, we have a lot of people that we know. A lot of people know about us, but they don't know us. How well are you known? Are there people that you can be absolutely raw and real with? Some of you have that. Some of you don't. How well are you known? Do you realize that your soul has this intense desire to be really known by other people? You know where that came from? God. Because he wants you to be known, not only by him, but by others. How well are you known? Second question, when was the last time you laughed? (laughs) I mean, really laughed. The Bible talks about this all the time. It says laughter is good medicine for the soul. It literally says that. Laughter is indication of a soul that is fully... uh, Laura will tell you this. When we go on vacation, I, I told you that my danger is stress and exhaustion sometimes. It is. Okay, I'm not, I'm not joking. And so it will take a day, maybe two, once we get into vacation, and all of a sudden I'm starting to crack jokes, and I'm starting to get silly, and I'm starting to make all these things. Uh, usually they're appropriate, I think, I think for a family. But I'm just kind of having fun, and I'm laughing, we're joking. And all of a sudden Laura will look over be, at me and she'll say, you're getting relaxed. That's her cue to say, like, You're getting to a better place already. And I wonder, I'm just asking this question. I've been off, I'm off my notes here. But I'm just wondering, are we living for the weekend or are we living for the vacation? And if we are, we're spending the vast majority of our life with an empty soul. When was the last time you just, you laughed? This next one ties very much to it. When was the last time you felt fully rested? That's a big one, isn't it? When was the last time you felt fully rested? Fully rested. Do you even know what that is? When was the last time you were really off work? Hmm. How many of you, when the kids go to bed, you're like, I can get a few more things done? You know why I can call this stuff out? Because I struggle with this myself. (laughs) When was the last time you were really off work? Really? One more. When was the last time you experienced Jesus personally? You. When was the last time you experienced Jesus personally? Do you even realize that you can? You can. It's just a matter of will you allow your soul to sit in a place where you can have that? When was the last time you experienced Jesus personally? So Pastor Matt Carter, he once said this, there is an eternal difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. 
an eternal difference. He's absolutely right. So the question I have for you today is, do you know Jesus? Your soul was made for him. It was made limitless because God is limitless. Are you willing to bring Jesus into that, into your soul? Do you want to? Jesus, God, invites you to do that. Let's pray. Lord, help us, every person in here, maybe this is one of those things that know somebody in here, they've never heard that before, that their soul was created for you, for you to fill. And they've always wondered, why do I always want more? Why am I always frustrated? Why am I always stressed? Why am I always overwhelmed with this life? And the answer to that may be because they've been trying to fill their soul with everything except God. God, I pray that they would realize that the only way to solve that desire problem is to fill it with the only desire that it was created for, which is to desire you. Our hope needs to be built on nothing less than Jesus, you, your blood, your righteousness, your hope, your grace, your joy, your salvation for us. So as we seek to walk through this life, if we are frustrated, if we are just overwhelmed, if we are tired and stressed out, remind us that it's because maybe we forgot about the most important aspect of this life, our soul, the eternal part that will exist after we're gone from here. So help us to follow you, fill our soul with you. Limitless grace, limitless love, limitless forgiveness mercy. Help us to fill ourselves with that. And we can see what only you can do. We pray this and we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.